Game of Thrones. Oh my god. There's dragons. You gotta watch it. You see them. There's this fight scene with the fire. Winter's Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Game of Thrones episode review. I'm Jason. I'm Christina. And today we are reviewing episode four, The Spoils of War. As we said, directed by Matt Shakeman and written by Benioff and Weiss, Rotten Tomatoes gave this a 100% and IMDb a 9.9. Wow. I think Rotten Tomatoes did 100% for another one. And Rotten Tomatoes said, in this tale of reunions and first-time meetings... The quiet moments vibrate with as much power and significance as that battle scene we've been spoiling for. And in general, I definitely agree. I loved every scene in this episode. Definitely. And one of our things was, why doesn't Danny bring three dragons? But this is definitely Game of Thrones saying, we're going to up it right now. We're going to give you what you've been wanting. But not all of it, because we can still save that for later. And soon enough, you'll get three dragons, probably next season, coming at you with maybe three riders. Yeah, any areas they haven't covered, there are little hints that they're laying throughout each episode now. We'll get to that. Don't worry. It's like three dragons coming across the horizon, right? And then behind it is like 30 crows just hanging onto Bran's shirt. (laughs) And he's yelling at people. Sorry. Well, Jason, we're not going to get into a full recap for this episode as we did go pretty much location by location for the instant cast. But we are going to talk about them because we have background that we didn't flesh out last time. And the areas we're going to look at in more depth are King's Landing, Winterfell, Dragonstone, and The Reach. The characters we didn't see in this episode. The Night's Watch and anything going on at the Wall. The Brotherhood, Sam, Euron, and Jorah. I think I like it better that we're not seeing anything at the Wall because I can kind of pretend it's not real. I feel the exact (laughs) opposite. I can't wait for them to get back and show me more walkers. Uh, I'm scared of the walkers. I don't want to see it. The deaths for this episode were obviously a bunch of Lannister soldiers, some Dothraki, and there's a question mark on Randall Tarly. Yeah, there was this one quick scene where a soldier was shown falling down, and I thought it may be Tarly, but I'm not positive. Yeah, on the rewatch, I think it looked less like him. We're going to get into the preview for next episode and what that might tell us, but we're going to save that for the end with our spoiler section. Just to give advance warning, we are going to talk about some book stuff, knowledge that will give you more background on some of the topics they're discussing, but we're going to be saving the preview for next episode inside the episode and any storylines from the books that haven't appeared yet on the TV show for the end. So let's jump into it. We start off with King's Landing. We spoke about how we see Cersei negotiating again with the Iron Bank on how she's going to use their gold. She plans on expanding the army and the navy. But she also said she was going to use the Golden Company to return their belongings. Okay, so we talked about the Golden Company very briefly in our Instant Coffee episode. Explain to me further what this company is. Yeah, because I don't think you've seen a lot about them on the TV show. They were mentioned in season four after Joffrey died. If you remember, Davos thought that Stannis should attack the Lannisters again. 
that it wasn't necessarily defeat for him, but he didn't have a substantial enough army. So Davos suggested he could hire a sellsword army from the Free Cities, perhaps the Golden Company. But Stannis said he couldn't afford it. This is because they are the best and largest sellsword company in the Free Cities, with 10,000 well-equipped, highly trained men. I had spoke about the way an individual can hire out a sellsword. You could essentially hire a private army of your own if you can afford it. The Golden Company's motto is, our word is as good as gold. It's a little on the nose. I guess basically once they sign a contract, they don't go back on it. Because there's this thought, right, what if the other army offers you more? Are they then going to turn to them because oh, they're right. swords for hire? But no, once they've chosen a side and signed that deal, they're going to be loyal to them. Before you hire them, you can go to iTunes and check their reviews <laughs> and see <laughs> and what their score is. Better than the Second Sons. <laughs> <laughs> their battle cry is, beneath the gold, the bitter steel. And this is a reference to one of their founding generals, who was a Blackfire. They were founded by losing soldiers of the Blackfire Rebellion who fled in exile to the free cities and then grew in size. At the time of the War of the Five Kings, when we started this story, their force consisted of 1,000 cavalry, 1,000 archers, 8,000 infantry, plus a bunch of war elephants. Whoa. This is a pretty good-sized army you can hire out. As I said, there was another one called the Second Sons, and I'll get more into them later on. So where do they reside? They're from Essos. But I think they will go to wherever they're hired to fight. So the gold that Cersei got from Highgarden, she's going to use to repay the Iron Bank. And then say to the Iron Bank, we need another loan. Yeah, because this is what we want, right? We saw Tycho Nestoris talking to her and saying, we're going to miss all that interest you had to pay on your debt before. If you pay it off in full, it's great we get the money, but we can't rely on that anymore. So he's kind of hoping... She will pay off what she owes now and then get in over her head again so they can go back to the old way of doing things. Now, who knows if she would have needed to do that prior to all of this food being burned up, but I think she definitely will now. If she's saying she needs money to expand the army and the navy, plus she might be having to increase their ships, do some repairs, and now she's also going to need to finance the food to keep her people alive. It's a lot of money. And she's hiring out the Golden Company to do these separate missions. She's definitely going to be in debt again, I think. Even if that gold does successfully make it, which I have to make a notation here. When we recorded the instant cast, I had misinterpreted the line that Randall Tarley said to Jamie. I thought he said <clears throat> the gold was on its way to King's Landing, meaning it might have got destroyed. It might have made it there. On the second watch, I realized he said the gold made it through the gates of King's Landing. So it's there already. So it is there. It's safe. Okay, so at this point, the Iron Bank will take it from there, or do they still have to deliver it out east? Oh, I think this is a done deal now. Because that could be another way to get the money if you're Daenerys. Yeah, and Emily put forth the question of, could the gold still be ambushed? So is there still possibly the opportunity, even though it's inside the gates that to cause a problem. It seems like it's pretty secure. But like I said, the bigger issue now is going to be the rest of the food supplies that they just lost, I think. Real quick, what's the difference between hiring the Golden Company and hiring, you know, the Second Sons from hiring the Many-Faced God? So the sellsword companies are like a private army. Ideally, you have bannermen that will rally to your cause when you need to muster up an army. So each major house, if you take the north, for example, 
The Starks would have had a contingent of their own army for their castle, a personal guard. But if they had to go fight a really big battle, that's not going to be enough. So at that point, they would rally their houses, other smaller houses that have sworn their allegiance to them and could raise a certain amount of men. Those are their bannermen. But if for whatever reason you don't have enough of that or you need to hire out, you could go to a sellsword company. The idea is they're obviously not as loyal to you as men that are doing this because they support you, they believe in you, the whole family is, has bent the knee in a way to you. A sellsword company is just in it for the money. Now they have varying degrees of allegiance and loyalty. You see somebody like Braun, who is a sellsword, singular, and he's going to go wherever the money is the best, the highest. So the Golden Company is supposed to be a more esteemed sellsword operation. There is another pretty large one, as I said, called the Second Sons. Now, hiring a man from the many-faced god is not going to be like an army to fight in your battle. You are hiring a lone assassin to come do a one-off deal to kill somebody for you. What if you hire like all of them? I don't think you <laughs> could do that. <laughs> and they all wear the same face. Bug everyone. So they all wear scary. Cersei's face. Oh my God, can you imagine? And you're like, which one's Cersei? <laughs> no, I get the difference. It makes sense. So let's go on to Winterfell. We had a bunch of scenes and a lot happening there. The first one where Littlefinger gives Bran the Valyrian steel dagger. And they even mention how important this is. This essentially was a major factor in starting the War of the Five Kings. And we know events were put into motion even before that when Jon Arryn was killed. This is what brought Robert up north to see Ned, to make him the Hand of the King, to bring him south. But that was all sort of going well until you threw a wrench into things. And it basically started with Catelyn discovering this dagger, bringing it to King's Landing, and pitting the Starks against the Lannisters. I think in order to figure out why this is important and where it all goes back to is to trace the tracks of the dagger. As far as we know, in book and TV, it started out belonging to Littlefinger. Now that's question number one. I've seen a lot of articles and people writing about the lineage of this dagger, but nobody seems to have any ideas of where Littlefinger could have got it in the first place. He was born into a poor family. It's probably not something that would have been inherited to him. And I honestly have no idea how it came to be in his possession. Five Littlefinger discount. (laughs) Oh, I mean... We're looking at the history, and it does seem to be correct that the reason they showed us the page Sam found in the book in Old Town was twofold. And the second part of it being that he got the information about the Targaryens decorating their weapons with dragon bone and things of that nature, dragon glass. And we do see that this Valyrian dagger is ornamented. It looks like it could be a Targaryen relic or something that belonged to them at one time. But again, how would Littlefinger come to own a Targaryen relic? So there was speculation on, is this going to be maybe something that belonged to Rhaegar that you come to find out? But I don't see those links being put together yet. And I don't think that matters, really. What matters right now is what Littlefinger was doing with it and why he gave it to Bran. Exactly. So if you go back, Littlefinger told Catelyn that he lost it in a bet to Tyrion, but obviously he was deliberately doing this to stir shit. In the books, we find out too late, or Catelyn finds out too late, that Littlefinger actually lost it to Robert Baratheon, and this is what led a lot of people down the trail of thinking it was Joffrey, who had hired out the assassin, that he somehow came upon this in his father's stores, took possession of it for himself, 
and hired an assassin, and that would make sense, is dumb enough to give him a very recognizable Valyrian steel blade. But unless I'm missing something, it still doesn't really tell us who hired the assassin. It seems to be that it could have been Littlefinger. But again, I think we're past that. The question really becomes, as you said, what was he trying to do in baiting Bran? Now, Emily wrote in with a theory about that. And she said it could have been a little along the lines of what he was trying to do with Sweet Robin. Give him a really fancy gift in order to ingratiate yourself and win him over to your side. That is plausible only if he knew nothing about who Bran is and what he's become now. And I think that's likely as nobody else knew what's going on with Bran until he comes back home to Winterfell and we're seeing his powers and how he's changed So as much as Littlefinger knows, how could he possibly know that? And perhaps that's what that interaction was trying to show us, where Bran came up against him and sort of said, I I see you. You can't mess around with me. In the instant coffee, I had said maybe he did that on purpose to give to Arya. But when we watched it again, I realized that this happened before Arya showed up. So that wouldn't be the case. Again, unless Littlefinger had some kind of advanced knowledge that she was coming. And I wouldn't put it past him. It's just didn't seem likely. Well, he's having a difficult time with Sansa. Seems to not even be trying with Jon Snow Mm -hmm. after their last encounter. So maybe he's trying to get the rest of the family on his side so that they'll quarrel with each other over him and he might be a little safer. Yeah, get any one of the Starks over, right? Maybe if I keep going younger and younger, one of them won't pick up on what I'm after here. But I think you hit the nail on the head is just to pit the Starks against each other. That seems to be his game if you go back to season one to cause this chaos and destabilization. But that means he's done with the idea that Sansa could be a ruler and he might nicely rule by her side without causing waves. And I think he's known this for a while. Maybe it was a last ditch attempt, him telling Jon how he feels about her. I don't know, but... (laughs) Okay, that doesn't work, so back to stirring up shit here. Now, the only reason I could see why people are trying to make the connection between the dagger back to Rhaegar, I see what they're getting at in trying to say it somehow belongs to Jon. There's too many leaps, and that doesn't tie in nicely at all. But I think it goes back to all of our original theories that Littlefinger would somehow have knowledge of Jon's parentage, And he uses that to stir up the Starks against each other. As in, he doesn't really have the right to rule Winterfell because he's not really a Stark. So he would use that knife being around as a talking point to one of the Starks to kind of insinuate that Jon Snow isn't a Stark? By getting them to bring up this stuff, if he did have any awareness that Bran is getting visions or has these powers, now Bran sees that information, sees the truth behind Jon's parentage, and they start discussing it amongst the Stark children. I still don't think finding that out makes them go against Jon at this point in the game. I think as soon as they see White Walkers, it's not going to matter what family you're from at that point. No, they're already kind of banding together. And that's another thing that worries me about Arya going off to continue with her mission. We we so clearly just want to see them become a pack again to stand against this common enemy, right? And they are slowly becoming a pack. There's three of them together now. When Jon Snow gets back, that's four. I don't think Reek will ever be a part of the pack. Uh, We'll get to that with how Jon addressed him, maybe. Yeah, actually you're right. Maybe that could come back around. But I I am still worried about Arya leaving. 
It sounds like in a way she was telling Sansa she's not quite done with that yet. And I thought they were drawing some really good parallels here because the reunion between Bran and Arya was very different than that between Bran and Sansa, right? It was a little more like they had both been through something and they got it in looking at each other, talking to each other. There was an understanding of the things they've had to go through and the fact that they're not the same anymore. And I think they both were able to look at Sansa and see, I'm not saying she hasn't endured an incredible amount. She has been through a lot and she's probably grown a lot stronger, but I don't think she's fundamentally changed in the way the other two are. And I think that's a little bit of the tension that we saw between Arya and Sansa. There was this great comparison on Wiki about Macy Williams and her character Arya and her reoccurring role in the British science fiction series Doctor Who. Hmm. if you remember this, in which she played a human girl who, through gaining immortality, had so many centuries worth of memories that she couldn't remember them all because it was more than the human mind can handle. And she similarly became emotionally detached from the rest of humanity, realizing how transient their lives actually are. That's amazing. I mean, I watched Doctor Who and I obviously loved her in this role, but I never thought about that comparison. And it really is kind of like what Bran's going through. Yeah, and Doctor Who, her name, I believe, if I remember correctly, ended up being me. Yeah. So that's kind of different from no one, right? Now it's me. Yeah, but but such similar experiences. Yeah, for sure. That's great. And in fact, we should slow it down and talk about the Arya returning home because we didn't really discuss that in the instant cast. There was this great moment where we see her just approaching the Winterfell Castle on her horse. And that swelling music starts playing in the background. Yeah. Well, isn't that the song that they always use with the Starks? Winter has come. Yes. Yes, I think you're correct. Jawadi has these great tracks. And as you said, he, he plays them in certain areas to kind of tie things together for us. So we get the Reigns of Castamere a lot when there's a Lannister event going on. We've been seeing Light of the Seven in a lot of the Cersei scenes. And now here, as you said, with the Stark scenes, Winter is coming. Do you think her direwolf is kind of following her with her crew just hidden? <laughs> oh my God, I actually hadn't thought of that. But when we see that scene of her on the hill, it's from the back, almost like somebody looking from the tree line at her. Oh, well, I like where your head's at there. I didn't think of it that way. I think if it was the wolves, the camera height would be a lot lower. Oh, okay. But I was oh, just, just I was just envisioning she's <laughs> on her travels and... Maybe that wolf and her crew are just kind of like following behind. I was really hoping that that's not the end of them and they might come into the battle later on. Next season, for sure. Well, back to Arya. So you have the emotional moment. And then I like that they put that right up against the humor as she comes to the castle gates and the guards won't let her in. I I like this scene because we knew something that they didn't, right? And we were like, how is Arya going to deal with this? Yeah, and it lightened things up for a minute. They're obviously idiots. Yeah. (laughs) And she brings that up to Sansa later. You need better guards. They don't believe her, as most of these people in the story never believe Arya, constantly underestimate her. I think that's something she has on her side, to be honest with you. Especially with the skills she has acquired, she can always use that as a strength. Element of surprise. And at the age she's at right now, the fact that people want to ignore her is perfect. For an assassin. You dismiss her as a child. She can go unnoticed even when she's in her own skin. But it was also really sad that none of the people she mentions are there anymore. 
Maester Lewin, Roderick, these men don't even know who she's talking about. It was definitely a reminder for us of things that have occurred in the past that we've kind of forgotten because so much has happened. Yeah, that this castle, this family was completely decimated. And we're going to go back to that later. It kind of brings up Theon's actions. When you talk about Theon now, what everyone's putting forth is, yeah, but he didn't kill Rickon and Bran. And he wasn't really the one that burned the castle. That was Ramsay. But it was because he initiated all of this that that happened. And by the way, he did still kill two boys. Yeah. <laughs> they just weren't Bran and Rickon. Uh, so it's changed Winterfell. And now finally we're getting a little bit back to the Winterfell of old, but it will never be the same. Yeah, I was going to say during that scene, when they say that they're no longer around, you can see the inner courtyard behind their heads. And I started thinking during that and remembering all those things. And I was like, wow, so many people have gone through this castle since those days with Arya. And so many things have happened. And they even do the slow pan with the camera once Arya's standing inside and she's looking around at each area of the castle and maybe thinking to herself, it looks the same, but it's not the same. Yeah. Uh, but first she has to trick them into it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Saying that Lady Sansa won't be too happy if she is who she says she is and they don't let her in. Well, that's quite a predicament. They're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. But they definitely could have handled it better. If they didn't bicker amongst each other, they could have gotten the right job done. And while they're doing so, she has the chance to escape. And this is when she goes down to the crypts where Sansa finds her. She knows she'll be down there. Now, we did talk about this meeting in our last cast. And we did go over the emotions that we went through while they were going through their emotions. But what we didn't go over is the fact that when they were pups, pun intended... <laughs> They didn't get along. Right now, they're older. They've gone through a lot separately. They're more mature, and I think they're willing to give it a try. But I'm wondering if that's going to come up again. And the reason why I bring that up is because of the way Sansa reacted when Arya was having a fun time with Brienne. Yeah, I kind of touched on this last time to say the differences that made them bigger as children, I don't think, are important anymore because of what they've been through. But there are some essential differences that were true then and are only magnified now. And I love that Benioff and Weiss really just confirmed that in the inside the episode. I won't get too far into that, but we watched it later on and it was a bit of what I had been saying. That idea when they were younger that Arya always knew this wasn't the life for her. You know, she was scrappy. She was tougher. She wanted to be a fighter. She couldn't understand why she wasn't allowed to be a knight the way Bran was going to train to be a knight. And Sansa wanted to be lady of the castle yeah. to marry a handsome man and rule. And I think that's what the Lady Stark comment was about. There's some of that Sansa still there. As I said, even though she's harder and tougher, she is not like Arya. And I think Arya is worried to start revealing this about herself, that Sansa won't get it as she didn't get it when they were children. There's also the issue of the tension that could be there. And I didn't bring this up last time because I'm not sure how much Arya knows. The last time they saw each other in season one, we were leading up to Ned's death. And while you can't say this was Sansa's fault in any way, she was caught in this trap that Cersei and Joffrey were laying for her. She was the one to convince her father to stay, confess his crimes, and he was going to be given forgiveness and allowed to take the black and live. Even Cersei seemed to believe that was going to happen until Joffrey went off the handle and killed him. 
But did Arya know any of that? And might she have a little bit of resentment if she did towards Sansa? But do you think that'll be brought up? Uh, little finger. I, yeah, well, there's so many potential areas. That's why I'm talking about it. Who knows what Littlefinger knows? That much, I am sure he knows about. I mean, the whole comment about both of them wishing they could kill Joffrey, I felt like they were skating around thin ice in every topic area. Even the reunion with John area, when Sansa brings up, well, he was happy to see me, but his heart would stop if he saw you. Oh, yeah. I love the way the double Ds use the statue of Ned as a middle ground for both of them because that's something they have in common. They can, that can start the conversation in the correct direction. Yeah, forever, right? Their love of him and, and saying, we have this shared history, even if we haven't physically been going through it together, how many things we've lost. There's no one left alive that knows the likeness of Ned's face well enough to make a statue of him. Except for them. Except for us. And it could have really cracked all the way through at the point where Arya brings up the kill list, but Sansa kind of thinks it's a joke yeah. in this moment and laughs it off. And Arya gives a smile and plays along, which I thought, and I think I said this already, was very telling on what Arya's mindset with being home is. It's the opposite of the way she was when she was eating food with hot pie. She didn't care about feelings. Her brain, her eyes, they were all somewhere else. That would have been her response there if family didn't still mean something. Yeah, she was able to pull up. That emotion was still there for her, the way it can't be for Bran. It's totally shut off. Arya's is just kind of pushed way down because of everything she's had to do, how hard she's had to be to survive, but it's still there. And that's what I'm worried about, what I've always been worried about for her is her checklist, her kill list, almost like a parallel to her losing humanity? Every time she has to take another name off of that list, the things she has to go through to get to them, what it takes out of her, sure, it's revenge. She feels good about it in the moment, but it takes a little piece of her soul away. So is it almost like, you know, pulling out pieces of Arya? If you get all the way through this list, you won't have any more Arya Stark left. She will truly be no one. Ooh, I didn't think of it that way. And along those lines, let's pause for a minute to review Arya's kill list because it's been a while since we've heard her say the actual names and she makes it a point not to tell them even when it comes up between Bran and Sansa. She just says that most of them are dead. But who is on there officially that's not dead? Both book and TV lists include Cersei, who has always pretty much been at number one. I think she's on everyone's list. Yeah. <laughs> number two is The Mountain probably on most people's list as well. And number three was Ilan Payne. And that was the headsman who couldn't speak, uh, the king's justice, the one who was responsible for killing anybody that Robert ordered killed. And Cersei still had him under her command for a while when they were going through the Battle of Blackwater and she was telling him to stand outside the door and if he had to take matters into his hand to do it. So those three are official and we believe still on there. There was some more, though. The Hound was on there for a long time. She eventually admitted that she had taken him off the list. Does she know the Hound is still alive? I don't think so. And that's something I never thought about before. I mean, I thought about it when it first happened, but she did just bring that up with Brienne. So that's an interesting topic. I don't see how she would know that. So maybe when she finds out he's alive, kind of like, well, you didn't pay your due diligence. You're back on my list because... She's not going to know immediately that he's 
had a transformation and come to the other side. There were some other people that were on her list for a bit. Melisandre, Beric, and Thoros were all on there because she was upset with the Brotherhood for allowing Melisandre to take Gendry away when she wanted to use him for King's Blood. You're going way back with those. Yeah, well, because the thing is, she sort of phased them out, but she never officially took them off. I wonder if they came back on her radar, if she would have reason, because she's starting to circle some of these characters, right? She's getting closer to the Brotherhood and the Hound. Um, She might come face-to-face with them again, and Melisandre, the last time she saw her, said they would see each other again someday. There's also some people that are not on her list, not included, but it's generally agreed that it's because Arya is not aware of their crimes. So had she known what they've done to her family, it seems likely she would have put them on there. There's Roose and Ramsay, but they're both dead. There was also Littlefinger and Theon. So again, she is right there with Littlefinger now, yeah. but doesn't know the full backstory on what he's done. Could they get added on? Did you see his face when he saw her walking through the courtyard? Yeah. Such a creep. See, there were so many things, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, behind that look. So many ways you could read it. But I just want to finish off here with the ones that she has killed that are off her list. Poliver, one of the first men that she killed when she was with the Hound in that inn. Joffrey, Tywin, Marion Trant, who she killed when she was out east, and most recently, Walder Frey. Her first kill, who wasn't on the list, were those army men when she was with the Hound eating. Do you remember that? Yeah, no, one of those guys is Polliver. Oh, okay. Who I was talking about that she wanted her revenge on. That's where she put her sword through his neck slowly. Yep. I saw that recently. I forgot how dark that scene was. The start of her change, and that's what I mean. That was the first name on her list. And crossing it off took something from her. I'm hoping that once she completes her list, there'll be some serenity to it. And maybe... (laughs) No? Okay. (laughs) Well, no, I understand where you're going with that, but it's the whole idea of revenge never makes you feel any better. You know, it's not going to fill this hole that's left there. It's preoccupying you at the time. It's keeping her busy from thinking about all of the pain they inflicted because she still has something to do. But once she's finished with all of that, the loss is still going to be there. She needs to have a more substantial turnaround, which is possible for her here now in Winterfell, but I'm, I'm worried if that's going to really happen. And I, I think we saw that paralleled with the Hound, because as she's going deeper and deeper down the road he went down when he was younger, he's trying to slowly climb back up and actually make that change. I would love to see them come face to face again soon and what would happen with that. We already discussed and we've been talking about it here, the scene between Bran, Arya, and Sansa at the Weirwood Tree. Do you have any other thoughts about that? Well, I like the fact that Sansa is well aware that Littlefinger doesn't do anything unless he's going to get something out of it. So that made me feel a little confident. The fact that Bran will not take any stuff, that felt good. Again, that whole scene with them was a way for GOT to let us know what Bran has gone through and also let us know how much he has improved on his skills. Yeah, and that Arya seems to get it. And like you said, it's not as though Littlefinger's fallen off the radar. They're coming together on a consensus and realizing he's up to something. And this is starting to look more and more like what Sansa said in the trailer before the season even started, where she says, when the winter comes, the lone wolf dies and the pack survives. So now we're seeing the pack starting to cultivate, and that's the Stark family. Oh, I hope so. Please keep it going with that. 
Yeah, and then we come to our last scene, again, where Arya fights with Brienne. We talked about how badass she was. There was a big question mark, though, on the end of the scene with Sansa's reaction to Arya and Littlefinger's reaction. I had said last time that it could be she's worried about what will happen to Arya if she continues along with these lone wolf assassin ways. I also was kind of wondering to myself if it was a little bit of jealousy. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but Arya has the skills to protect herself. And that's something Sansa's never learned. Would certain events maybe have been different for her if she knew how to do that? And I don't think they would, but this could be going through her mind in the moment. I see what you're saying, but... Earlier, you had said that lifestyle Sansa never wanted. So I don't think this is a skill she really wants. I don't think she wanted the lifestyle, but the ability to do it if she needed to is something Arya has that she doesn't. Uh, But I think it's mostly correct what we've been surmising. It's just the tension between the two of them coming to a boil. Arya does have a kill list, and it's real. Arya is a skilled fighter and borderline assassin, even just from what she can see play out in the courtyard. And that's concerning. One thing that I don't know is how to answer this. I believe this scene means a lot more than what we know right now. Yes, it was G.O.T.'s way of letting us know how badass Arya really is. I mean, she's going against Brienne, who is a powerhouse. Brienne has a huge Valerian sword that she's fighting with. Yeah, is this just another reminder of the important weapons that are floating around too? Because we have gone through the list of what they are. And Brienne has Oathkeeper, one half of what was formerly Ice, Ned Sword. So it's, it's kind of funny that Arya's fighting Brienne right now. Not for real, but Brienne has Ned Sword and she's not even aware of it. And then she has Needle, which is the sword Jon gave to her. And I wonder if that will come to have more significance than just what it means to Arya personally. And we have the Valyrian Steel Dagger here now, all in one fight. Yeah, they came to a stalemate. I mean, it looks like... Arya was kicking butt, but we saw that she got knocked down. And then at the end, when they froze, Brienne's sword was right there, and Arya's dagger was right at her neck. So I think it was a stalemate, right? Yeah. Which says a lot, though. She is incorporating all of the skills that she's learned from everyone along the way, Arya. I love this. You're seeing her take the skills she learned from the House of Black and White, because we weren't quite sure what level of that she had attained, how skilled she was, but she proved that in taking out Walder Frey. And now here, she's exhibiting those beautiful water dancer skills yeah. that we haven't seen in action in a long time. So she remembered, which is crazy. Yeah, she's using all of it. So I'm anxious to see what Littlefinger's face mm-hmm. really meant. Some people were saying it looked like he was nervous. Some mm-hmm. people were saying it looked like he was planning something and found happiness from it. And I think we said that in the Instacast. The more I look at it, the more confused I get. I don't know. I think it's super hard to read, and any one of those could be right. I have a feeling it was all of those rolled into one. I think he had a bit of admiration and respect for Arya. I think he saw Sansa's reaction building to Arya. He's watching Sansa very closely for how she reacts to each of her siblings and where the wedge might be. She thought she had it with John no dice. Now, I think he sees even more of an emotional response to Arya. Oh, that's where I can put the crack in. So there's also a bit of glee behind that. You know, even though some of the plans are failing and it's intimidating, the dagger has come back into play. I think he thrives on this chaos and he's got a new plan forming already. But yes, I love all of your thoughts about this. Thank you to everyone that wrote in, including Emily. 
who is of the mind that Littlefinger might have been a little intimidated here. All right, are you ready to move on to Dragonstone? Let's do it. Again, we're not going to go into the specifics of the recaps for each scene because we talked about it, but there's a few important things. Number one, when John is showing Danny the dragonglass in the cave, I thought it was an interesting comment that he says, it's all we could ever need. It seems like such a foreshadow, poor John, you know nothing, John Snow, <laughs> that it's not going to be all you ever need. And all of these things that you think are going to be the ultimate in defeating the White Walkers might not be. So we've talked about Dragonflame. Is there going to be a glitch in that plan when they actually get the dragons over to fight the White Walkers? We know they have some resistance to fire, maybe even magical fire, because in the battle at the Heart Tree, when the children were trying to defend against them, hmm. they were throwing those fireball type things. Yeah. And it was working on the whites, the risen dead, decimating them. But when they went after the White Walkers, they were sort of able to deflect that and put up a shield or a ring. I know Dragon Flame, the thing that shoots out of the dragon's mouth, is way more powerful. We saw that at the end of this episode. But is it foolproof against the winter and the White Walkers? We're not really sure. And so same thing with Dragonglass. It can kill the Whites, but it doesn't do it against a White Walker. It's going to be great to take down the Army of the Dead, but they're going to need more to take out that ruling class. So let's give a little background on the Dragonglass itself. We were kind of wondering what was the reason for Sam having this revelation about it, even though we saw it back in Season 5. Stannis told Sam there was Dragonglass on the island. Coming back to those screenshots of the book Sam was reading... They seem to explain the discrepancy. There is a long-abandoned dragonglass mine on the island that we're looking at now, built by the ancient Valyrians and used by the First Men, which even the Valyrians consider the largest concentration of dragonglass in the known world. So apparently, Stannis and Davos knew the dragonglass could be found, kind of like little bits, loose rocks here and there, but they never knew just how much there was because the mine had been forgotten for generations. And Danny has that similar revelation when she sees it. Not just that it's a potential weapon they can use, but it's the history of her people, the Targaryens who were here thousands of years ago, and way before that, to the children and the First Men. I mean, this is an incredible discovery. And that all comes out with the hieroglyphs that we see on the walls. It's kind of strange to think that there was children of the forest over there. Long before the Valyrians were. So I think people get a little confused about the geography of Dragonstone. This is part of Westeros. I believe that's why they give you the opening map sequence panning from King's Landing right up to Dragonstone. So you can see if you go up the coastline a little on the east, you will hit this island just off the mainland. That's Dragonstone. So it makes a lot of sense that if they came from Essos and they just crossed the Narrow Sea, one of the first places you would arrive at is that island. Can you imagine seeing a bunch of children of the forest on a boat? You'd be like, what are they doing? No, not the children, the Valyrians. No, but they were there to draw that. Oh, how did they get to the island? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Man, I don't know if they took boats. How did that happen? But they were there with the first men, reinforcing there was a time they worked together. We know there was fighting at certain points when they first came over, but then they saw this common enemy. Yeah much the way John and Danny have to unite now, and that's what he brings up. Can you imagine that awkward conversation? So you're, you're part of the first men, you're friends with the children of the forest, and you're on this boat, and you're like, isn't this cool? You guys haven't done this before, and they're like, yeah, this is great. We're, we're standing on dead trees. 
Thanks. Oh, <laughs> no. Yeah, they probably would not be jazzed about that. I'm a little tired. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> it's been a long GOT run here. But let's talk about the symbols we saw on the walls. They were very reminiscent. You even brought it up, right? From season one, episode one. Oh, yeah. The shapes. Yeah. They reflect the shapes that the White Walkers have made with dead bodies, which just shows that the White Walkers come from the Children of the Forest. So they're kind of emulating what those shapes are. But does that mean something deeper? Does that mean that the constitution of the Children of the Forest or the way they think? Went into the White Walkers? Yeah. Yeah. uh, It seems to have had mystical significance to the children. They're drawing it all over the walls, those first symbols the way you see with ancient hieroglyphs and other cultures. And again, going to the inside the episode, and this isn't a spoiler, but Benioff and Weiss talk about how that has significance to people in all cultures in real life and the spiral shape that comes from nature. So it was on a mystical level for them. It also seems to be for the White Walkers. Again, going back to season one, episode one, they arranged the bodies, the dead bodies in that shape, And then when we see them bringing the male children to that altar that looks like a religious ceremony, you have a similar circle around the altar. I keep getting brought back to their motivations. And if they are subscribing to some kind of religion that makes sense to them, why they're doing this. And yeah, that could certainly come from the children. If you guys are just joining us in episode four, Christina had quite a banger of a theory, I think second episode. Probably. (laughs) It's a long theory, so definitely go check that out. It's a theory about what the White Walkers' intentions are and why they're there. And admittedly, it involves the side you're probably cheering for, perhaps not being the good guys, and unintentionally so. But back to John and Danny here, the events they're looking at most likely come from the long night. At the end, they see the images of the White Walkers, which means the drawings must be at least 8,000 years old. That's pretty old. (laughs) Yeah, and I think the weight of that is sitting heavy on both of them in that moment. It's part of what gets Danny to come around, I think, to helping John in the North out. Now, there was a lot of talk, again, about the potential attraction building between the two in the episode. We saw on Twitter this funny (laughs) meme. It was basically Jon Snow and... Egret having that sex scene in a cave and then there was Jon Snow and Danny and they were like I forget what exactly what it was but it was like uh looks like Jon Snow has a fetish for caves he does his best work in caves yeah yeah I've heard this and I'm not saying there couldn't be an attraction building but my theory was and still is that a lot of that was about Danny trying to manipulate John using her feminine wiles in a way to get him to agree to what she wants so I think GOT is intentionally keeping that ambiguous, and we're going to have to see where it goes. We know that she is listening to him a little now, so she's coming over to the John side, but I don't think she's falling in love with him by any stretch. Not yet. They will if their king does. They chose you to lead them. They chose you to protect them. Isn't their survival more important than your pride? Doesn't she have a lover that she left back at Marine? Yeah, Dario. Yeah. I think she's kind of... Over it? Uh, I guess so. Well, he's holding down the fort over there. By the way, you were asking about the second son. So oh, that's right. in TV version, he was the leader after he killed the other two guys. So that was the second son. That was that. Damn, okay. I, I, 
didn't think about putting those pieces for you together before. But yeah, she left him and the rest of his second son company to keep control in Marine while she's gone. We also see in the next scene, Danny kind of berating Tyrion for his failure. She says something key that she wonders if he doesn't really want to hurt his family. And we know that's true. You think he doesn't want to? I think absolutely with Jamie. I don't know his feelings on Cersei right now, but the way he looked out at him across that battle. Yeah. uh, No, he doesn't want him dead. And I know we must be building to the Tyrion Jamie showdown, reunion, whatever it's going to be that has to play out on screen, right? Which means. Well, yeah. So we saw that Jamie and Bronn started sinking, right? So. We think it's Bronn at least that saved him. Yeah. Anastasia thinks that it might be Dickon. Yeah. There's a couple options. I think Bronn is most likely. I think so because the last scene with Bronn, he was looking at the white horse, like he was about to go and ride exactly. it. Exactly. I agree. For sure, Danny's going to have them as captives. Yeah, it's like I said at the end of the last one. She's not just going to say, oh, they fell in the water, I'm done. Yeah. She's going to wait and take them when they come back out. That's going to give us time. Well, one, it depends on how she treats Jamie. I wonder if she, if she treats him too badly, will that piss off Tyrion? But I don't think so. No, I think you're on to something. There's going to be a rift immediately because Tyrion's already on her bad side and she's going to want to go at Jamie, and he's going to kind of come to Jamie's defense a little. Right. Like, don't kill him at least. And, and she's had enough, so that could be tension. But could Tyrion turn Jamie and turn him into the good guy that we want him to be? Oh, I hope so. I hope that's what it is. And now you got Bronn, like I said, who might feel conflicted about his original loyalties to Tyrion. Maybe all of that's enough to sway them to come over to her. Yeah, but Bronn's going to get, like... I'd at least punch Brown in the face if I was Danny, because you, you mess with my dragon. He's the one that shot. The, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'd actually, I'd take the, I know it's heavy, but I would take that big spear and just throw it at him. Oh, he'd be dead <laughs> if you did that, for sure. Uh, but we're, we're racing ahead of ourselves. Let's come back to Dragonstone for just a minute. We're almost done here. I want to bring up the fact that there was a conversation between John Davos, and Masande. And Masandi explains they don't have marriage in North. So the custom of a bastard doesn't exist. She isn't getting it at first. You were a Stark, but you're really Jon Snow. What does all this mean? Further bringing up of the Jon parentage that's going to come into play later. True. And yeah. the fact that if he's a bastard, either way might not be important. Both times the, those kinds of conversations happen on that walkway, by the way. Yeah, it's a good spot for it. <laughs> I really enjoyed that scene. I think John needed that. I kind of wish Missandei would have gone more into her home and describing it there because it's such a beautiful place. And she kind of told Danny about it, I think, a little once and how she remembers her brother laying in a field of butterflies. Mm-hmm. And I really just enjoy anytime Davos is part of that conversation. Do you mind if I switch sides? <laughs> <laughs> that was great. I... I can't remember if I brought this up on last podcast, but I want to reiterate that he was my favorite character from the books and hadn't had as much screen time here on TV, but we're getting a lot more of him now again. Yeah. Um, they also mentioned that there are less than 10,000 fighting men, good fighting men in the North. God help me, is he including the wildlings in this number? I believe so. I mean, they've been warring. They just had that battle of the bastards and a lot of people died there. 
Oh, I hope not. I thought he meant <clears throat> 10,000 regular Northmen. No, because remember when they were having their meeting, they were saying we need children to be trained. We need women to be trained. Yeah. All able bodies. Yeah, and I don't think he's including them in the 10,000. No, he's not. But still, that is <laughs> that is not enough. And I, I just have to make the point. I know I'll say it again later when we get to the battle. It's an unpopular sentiment. Everybody wants to feel good and be cheering for Danny in these scenes. And I was doing it too. <laughs> don't get me wrong. But in the back of my mind always is you need to stop fighting amongst yourselves. I know they yeah. left Danny no choice. She had to come at them. She did this in the best way she could by kind of listening to John and not going after King's Landing where there would have been innocent casualties. This is only soldiers in the middle of a field where she's not burning houses and cities, but it's still that many men that the army of White Walkers can now bring up on their side that we no longer have fighting for the living. Also, to put it in perspective, you were saying the Golden Company has 10,000. Just sell swords. Yeah. So put those number in perspective for you. Could we have hired them before Cersei got to them? right? (laughs) And there was the last scene of Jon and Theon, which was incredibly tense at the beginning, a little anticlimactic. I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I have to put this out there. We were watching on RTV and it was very dark, so I couldn't see where Jon's hand was. When you went at Theon? This is your fault because you insist on having the light behind the couch on, which puts a glare on the damn TV. Yeah, let's let's have our, our marital spat out now. <laughs> well, I couldn't see it. Looked like he went lower, but in the rewatch, he definitely was up high on his chest with his yeah. shirt. But that's even less of a good move now. I feel... No, that's the bully move. Uh, yeah, but he definitely went super easy on Fionn. I will agree with all of you about that. What else could he have done? Because as much as we said he, he didn't kill any Starks, there was a lot of betrayal here. And John doesn't know, remember, that what he's been through. Like, John doesn't realize he's paid for these crimes right. a thousand times over. So just take it from his perspective in the moment. Well, maybe he does from Sansa. It didn't seem like they were doing a lot of talking, but we could... Give him that benefit. We're going to get way more into Theon later with Clatcher's comments, so I'll just put that on pause for now. And let's go to our last area in the Reach and talk about our big ending sequence. There was a fun little quote to open this up that we didn't mention last time. Bronn is wondering why Jamie's upset after such a victory, and he says, did the Queen of Thorns give you one last prick in the balls before she died? <laughs> and it's humorous, but again, just reinforcing that Lady Olena got her digs in. Oh, yeah. And we've talked about her planting mind bombs, messing with people. She definitely messed with Jamie's head. Well, I love what Jamie says to Bronn when he requests that castle. One, of course, he says, we're in war. As soon as you move in, it's going to be taken. Yeah. But two, you don't want that kind of burden. The more you have, the more burden you, you have on you, which I think is very smart. It is, but I had brought up in the instant cast how Bronn is making a good point. That the Lannisters are always going around saying they pay their debts. <laughs> Other than Tyrion, they pretty much promise stuff later, later when this happens. We see that going on <laughs> with Cersei now yeah. to Euron. When the war is won, Jamie now is doing it to Bronn. Bronn's like, listen, this gold is great. You promised me a castle and a better wife. Don't have either of those two things yet. Just reiterating that the Lannisters have many downfalls that have notoriously made people dislike them and will continue to do so. 
He says to him after that, well, it's not going to be a peaceful reign under Cersei. You're crazy if you think that. We discussed Randall telling Jamie the gold train had made it to King's Landing, but the winter food stores most definitely got torched when Drogon came in. I feel bad for the farmers that got ransacked. The small folk are just getting screwed left and right. This is going to become a major issue once winter starts to come. They need to build a big furnace and just have one of the dragons there to just breathe fire into it every so often. Keeps everything warm. Can they create food? Because, I mean, that's the issue. The North said they don't have enough grain, even coming from all of their other people that are going to try to seek shelter in Winterfell. Yeah. King's Landing now doesn't have enough food. And you just torched the food from one of the most productive regions in the whole kingdom. I mean, Danny maybe didn't think that part through because she needs that too once she takes over. And it kind of seemed like she was going right at the baggage line. Not kind of. That's what she was doing. Oh, that's (laughs) a bad idea. I'm assuming that the people of the North have alternative ways of making crop because they live in winter all the time. Well, part of what they do is to plan for this and to put food stores away early on. They're, winter is coming. That's their theme. So right. they're, they're always ready at setting aside and they have their people doing the same thing. But they even made that comment that because of the war and everything that's been going on, yeah. nobody has it. Nope. And getting into the battle, we talked about how epic it was. <laughs> The amazing visuals, seeing the Dothraki come into battle. I'm not abandoning my army. You're the commander, not a damn infantryman. Those fuckers are about to swamp us. We can hold them off. Seeing Danny and Drogon, the dragon just looking incredible this season. Benioff and Weiss had brought up kind of what I was saying, feeling conflicted throughout this battle because we had major characters on both sides. We really didn't want either side to win or lose, right? We don't want to lose Jamie yep. and Bronn. We don't want to lose Danny, Drogon, and Tyrion. Yeah, we discussed that in the instant coffee as well. It's pretty cool because that doesn't happen often on TV. You have principal characters, as they say, on both ends this time and duel two of them each. But what did they do? They made everyone else die except for those. Of course. (laughs) But weren't you feeling like as epic and heroic when she was sweeping in and shooting fire and you wanted to go, yeah, but then you're going, no, no, Jamie, get out of the way. And Benioff and Weiss, I think, said this was the first time it happened, but someone online brought up that it's really not. We had that in the Battle of Blackwater, too, with Tyrion and Stannis, that we didn't really want to see either of those people die. No, they were saying it's the first time you had two on each side. Two pairs. Oh, okay. Because yeah. we had Stannis and Davos in Blackwater. Did you ever really love Stannis? Well, I know I was kind of alone on this, but <laughs> I did. I yeah. really liked Stannis and, and it's an unpopular feeling, but um, I certainly liked Davos. We, we didn't like Melisandre was the thing, but she wasn't even at that battle. But coming back here, one of our Clatchers wrote in, first time writer, T.T., and she had a good comment. Did it seem like the directors were drawing a parallel between how Jamie killed the Mad King and how he intended to kill his daughter with a spear through the back? So Jamie <laughs> stabbed the Mad King in the back. Yeah. He was going after Danny the same way. I was thinking the whole time as Jamie's watching the battle, he must be having flashbacks to the Mad King burning people in their armor. He's right. watching soldiers kind of cook in their armor. And I never thought about, yeah, the moment with Danny had to be very similar. Yeah, I didn't think about that either. I love that. 
that same motivation in his mind in the moment, this is probably a heroic thing to do, the right thing to do, because Danny is starting to look mad queen to him the same way Ares was when he was burning people. He's got to take her down to stop the destruction and the madness. Yeah, but he's an idiot. Let's say he did kill her. There's a dragon right there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a dumb plan. But I, I think that he was doing it for what he thought were the right reasons. Now, I'm not excusing how does he not realize that it would be right to kill Cersei too, yeah. but I can feel the conflict here. And I also was thinking to myself the whole time that bringing the dragons in are like introducing a weapon of mass destruction. And again, it's, I, I'm being completely serious with you guys. We don't watch the inside the episode until later. So these were all thoughts I just had and, and then Benioff and Weiss were echoing that, but it's great. I think it means we're getting the message they're putting out to us. It does help that we spend three weekends a year with them. <laughs> so it might be that. Yeah. Uh, you were talking to me earlier about the name Scorpion Ballista. And some people were thinking that Scorpion would mean that this ballista is poison-tipped. And we don't believe that. One, because we probably would have seen that. They would have talked about it. You had brought up, which I thought was great, Another reason why it would be called Scorpion Ballista. Yeah, so we keep saying Scorpion Ballista. I guess technically they are different. A ballista is this huge stationary weapon that has to stay where it is, and you can't move it very easily. One person wouldn't be able to control it that way. A scorpion is a lot smaller and can be carried with armies when they're on the move. Set up easily, one person can move it around. It's kind of like if you imagine the way a scorpion can move back and forth easily, move its tail easily, that's what we're seeing Braun use here. It's just a very advanced version of it that Kyburn has built to be super powerful. But I don't think that has any ties to poison, although well, that would be another good idea if they tip the bolts with that. No. For the bad guys, I don't want to see that happen. <laughs> there was also one other really great parallel in this ending scene we spoke about where Jamie is knocked into the water. Yeah. And you end the episode on seeing him sink down and his face receding further and further away. That very much reminded me of what happened to Tyrion in season five, episode five, where him and Jorah were in Valyria and attacked by the Stone Men. Tyrion went overboard, and we saw him sinking down beneath the water. Yeah. So I think they are trying to purposefully make those parallels and set you up for the Tyrion-Jamie meeting that's going to happen soon. If you watch that scene again, it's definitely on purpose. It looks so similar. Yeah. So as conflicted as I did feel about the battle, I thought that was brilliant story writing. The visuals were incredible. Like I said, the Dothraki just looked amazing. <laughs> yeah. Standing up on horses, shooting. You said the dragon every time it's on scene, just done to perfection. The money well spent. Question, why don't they build armor for the dragon? I mean, I know that's a lot of metal, but... I don't think you could get it on him. And it might in encumber his flying. Uh, I guess so, but... Abilities plus, there is that whole thing of once they're fully adult... Their hide is supposed to be impenetrable. So I go back to either he's not totally adult yet, or this is some kind of crazy advanced scorpion that Kyburn built, because even the scorpions they were using back in the day would only pierce the dragon if it got him, say, in the eye. The only thing that could pierce a dragon's hide was another dragon. So I'm confused about the fact that the bolt was able to go in him. Jason, do you have any closing thoughts on the battle? It was a brilliant battle. This harkens back to last week, 
when we were discussing why we didn't see the battle at Highgarden. And I said, because probably, especially this season, we're going to see a lot of battles and they want to keep the impact of that battle for the viewers. So if we had just seen a battle last week at Highgarden, I think the impact of this one would have been less. Granted, there was no dragons there, but <laughs> I think it was perfect. Definitely. And that brings us to our Raven rating. We've kind of said it all, but on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give episode 4, The Spoils of War? I'm going, this is my highest so far, 9.8. Wow. And the same excuse I always give. I can't do 9.9 or 100 because I just want to leave room for an even better one. But that is by far your highest rating. You gave episode 1 a 9.5, 2 an 8.5, 3 an 8.9. I was audibly yelling. Yeah, you love the Danny scenes. I also really like this episode. I'm going to give it a 9.3, which is just slightly lower than episode 3. You're such a harsh critic. Well, I gave 3 a 9.5 and you told me I was going too high. But it's because of those mixed feelings that I had. That's why it's good, because it's giving you these mixed feelings, you know? I know, but when you were left off on that bad note an episode before that, you graded a little lower too. It's, um, I don't want to have to see Danny do these things. She has to, and she's doing the only thing she can, but I wish she didn't have to is the point. Yeah. Well, it also goes to say that she followed Jon Snow's opinion, Yeah. basically. I mean... He said not to burn castles and and people. That's one of those letter of the law things. Well, I didn't burn castles, John. I won't go there. (laughs) I never thought that dragons would exist again. No one did. The people who follow you know that you made something impossible happen. Maybe that helps them believe that you can make other impossible things happen. Build a world that's different from the shit one they've always known. But if you use them to melt castles and burn cities, you're not different. You're just more of the same. Yeah, I noticed he wasn't here for this battle. She brought Tyrion with her, but Jon stayed back at Dragonstone. Well, yeah, because he's got to mine the mines. Yeah, but you think he's personally going down there and doing that? He's probably supervising. You think so? I don't think he's lazy. No, not that he's lazy. I just mean he... Potentially, he could have gone with her, but he's still against this war in general. This is not the main point of what we need to do right now. We have to remember that Reek came back. Hope people aren't mad that I'm calling him Reek. He's Theon now, Jason. Okay, that Theon came back, and what he said was, I need Danny to help me get her back. Yeah. Okay, so now she has Jamie and Bronn. Cersei won't care about Bronn. Is she going to use Jamie as a tool? To get Yara back? Does she care that much? I was going to say it's... What we would typically do in these situations, the, but the, rule, values the rulers would negotiate, but it's the same thing that happened last time when Jamie was a captive and they were going to use that as a bargaining chip for the Stark girls. But like you said, it's unbalanced. Jamie's worth a lot more. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, she kind of cares about Yara. She cares about her in the sense that she doesn't want Cersei to have her. That's not right. I think that will come up very soon. I'm just, God, I don't want Danny to keep getting sidetracked and putting herself in danger for these things, yeah. you know? Let's move on to our MVB, Most Valuable Bannerman for the episode. So this week, we again went on our Twitter, at CKC Podcast, and we asked our Clatchers, who was your Most Valuable Bannerman this week? Of course, Twitter's so awesome, they only gave us the ability to give four. And we did forget one Bannerman. Yeah, it's not really that we forgot. I think I kind of, I grouped him in with Danny. So if you wanted it 
to go to him, he would give it to Danny. And we're talking about Drogon. Yes, and we do feel you on that. Everyone who wrote messages about that, your vote was counted, and we agree with you. Um, Also, no, it's Christina's fault. (laughs) (laughs) So we have fourth place, Tyrion, with 2%. Third place, Jamie with 5%. We have a closed... Very, very, very close, close. Second and first place. We have Braun at 45% and Danny at 48%. And we're giving the co-winner will be Drogon. Yeah, he's got the honorary here. So they went with Danny. Now, I understand why Braun would be up there so high. Because he was the difference maker in this battle. He was the one that saved Jamie's life. He was the one that got the dragon down. Yeah, he's fighting on the side we don't agree with right now. But if you actually look at what he did over the course of this episode, he didn't have a dragon. He didn't have anything but his own wits and skill. And yeah, he saved Jamie's ass a bunch of times. And he managed to hit a dragon, which is no small feat. No, that dragon was far away. We watched it again. I was like, how did he hit him? And under anybody else would have been shitting their pants just to be in the line of fire. He managed to stay there, keep his cool. And taking. So for that reason, my MVB for this week is Braun of the Blackwater. Wow. And my most valuable bannerman coincides with our Clatchers. Hails from House Targaryen, Danny, Because she decided, I'm done listening to all of the you guys and your great plans. I'm no taking my dragon. Plans. And I'm leaving. It was very close for me as we, well. Yeah. And we did talk about this. I wish she had the ability to ease back a little bit in the midst of the emotion and be like, all right, that was close. Let me back off. I mean, it's inevitable they're going to get taken out by the rest of my army. So let me just chill out. Let me land next to Tyrion and watch it from up there. But this is the Danny we wanted. She brought us the dragon and she made the episode for me. So thank you guys so much for voting. We're going to do this every week. If you missed out, don't worry, we'll do it again. And we're going to start doing this for all of our shows. Our next show will be Mr. Robot, and we're definitely going to be putting that down. Yeah. And after that, Westworld. So be sure to follow us at CKC Podcast. Okay, full disclosure, we recorded this Monday night and the poll wasn't completed. So the results are different now. Now that the poll is finished, we have Braun winning at 48% and Danny just losing at 44%. So that changes it up. So the Clatchers feel that Bronn is the most valuable bannerman. And I can see that because during the fight, Bronn was the one to get to the scorpion and actually take down the dragon. Granted, he didn't kill the dragon, but he took him down and perhaps made it where some of his men can still live. And of course, he's the one that raced over to save Jaime from Drogon. Not to mention, he was the one there for the little bit of comic relief that's needed in Game of Thrones. We're going pretty long here, so I think what we're going to do... This week's a special week. We're going to do a Clatcher's Comments episode later on this week. And that's where we'll have all your comments, all your theories, and we'll discuss them. Well, now we come to our last segment, Sneak Peek Through the Heart Tree, which does contain some spoilers. So if you're afraid of that, we will see you next time for our Episode 5 review, Eastwatch. For everyone else still here, we are going to first take a look at the inside the episode from HBO, but we did talk about most of that throughout the course of this review. One final thing they mentioned was that the inspiration for Arya returning home, they took from Odysseus, returning after his wanderings to realize that nobody recognizes him. It's all very different. I really liked that. Also, we brought up the Second Sons before, the other sellsword group that on TV we basically saw through Dario. They are another sellsword company operating in Essos. They're kind of rough, 
They fight for the highest bidder, so they have a bit less of that loyalty and allegiance you see with the Golden Company. Their name comes from the tradition of firstborn children in noble families receiving inheritance, properties, and titles, while the second sons receive nothing. Therefore, often to seek their fortune, second sons would go out into the wider world and join sellsword companies. One of the biggest ones established was this one here. The reason this was important in the books, towards the end of book five, Tyrion and Jorah escape their slave captors that have them for quite a bit, and they join the second sons. Tyrion intends to make them switch sides again from the inside so he can get them to fight for Danny again. And at this point, they were being commanded by a man named Brown Ben Plum, who had betrayed Danny. There was a big question in Danny's mind if this was the betrayal for gold. Remember, we heard she was going to be betrayed three times. That's right. She, in the books, really believed Brown Ben Plum was the for gold one. And when the battle started to unfold between the forces and Danny's men started to win, he did, in fact, return to Danny's side and tried to say they really were for her all along. <laughs> Turning was a ruse. But that was a, a major point because you get to see this side story with Tyrion and Jorah joining up with this group. And Tyrion had to essentially sign half his life away. All of his gold, he promised them Casterly Rock itself so that they would take him in. But it was all part of his plot. Apparently, there is another thing from this episode that ties into the novels. It occurs in one of the preview chapters that was released for the sixth novel that hasn't come out yet. So if you're afraid of that, definitely fast forward a minute. I have read some of the preview chapters, and I did read some of this one, which was on Ariane Martel, but I must have missed this part. They say that it contains description of the children of the forest and the cave carvings they leave behind. In this chapter, we're discussing the main POV narrator for Dorne, which Ariane has been cut from the TV show. She doesn't exist there. But she was a daughter of Prince Doran. Her and her companions, Elia Sand and Damon Sand, discover some of these carvings while they're taking shelter in a cave in the Stormlands to head north. They are described as faces, many of them with sad expressions. And the last thing we got is a preview for Episode 5, Eastwatch. We see Danny say, bend the knee and join me or refuse and die. So we're thinking that she's talking to whoever's left alive in the army so far, including Jamie and Braun. And, and maybe Randall. And maybe Dickon. Yeah, Randall and Dickon. I, I think that's going to be true. She's giving them the opportunity to come over to her side. Yeah, then we see Vari saying, you need to find a way to make her listen, presumably yeah. talking to John. Okay, so this loving family is now starting to have some rocky moments. And again, not to sound like a broken record, Lady Olena said this would happen. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that Tyrion is smarter than this. I don't know what is up with Varys. That one scene, I know it's a half a second scene, just made me remember everyone saying that Varys is probably yeah, the bad guy. He's still scheming somehow. I, I just can't figure out if that's actually what it is. But for sure, he doesn't like all of this burning people and Danny being the dragon. And I guess neither does John. So he, they're all probably thinking John is the one who can talk sense to her. Right. Or maybe they're freaking out because Danny says she's going up north. Yeah, but why would Varys think John's going to talk her out of that? John wants her there. True. Speaking of John, we see Drogon landing with Daenerys on top of him in front of John and screaming at him. I really want to know what that's about. I think that was just a dragon hello. 
He's testing John. I'm serious. I think they paint these things sometimes like they're going to be one way, but then they're really not. I think Danny is trying to introduce them officially because that's why she's on top of him. I don't think she's going after John or anything. And John is standing there looking not super scared. No. So, I mean, he shit himself, but... Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, he's not hitting the deck like he did the first time he saw Drogon fly overhead. Oh I think God. he's really trying to have that relationship, and this could be the moment we were waiting for where a John, where a dragon responds favorably to John. Yeah, that would be great. What's up with these other two dragons, man? Have we even seen them besides Why? flying in the distance? Why aren't they here? I don't know. Daddy, what are you doing? Is she trying to keep them safe? By leaving two at home, that way you're only ever risking one? Well, I think she's home at that moment because John's there. Oh, yeah, but you're not going to introduce John all three at once, are you? Hell yeah. I'd be like, <laughs> well, that's <laughs> no, I guess scary right. yeah. shit, man. <laughs> well, Caesar Milan, when he's trying to introduce a dog to his dog pack, he brings them right into the kennel with all the dogs yeah. and to sniff each other's butts. I don't think the dragons <laughs> are like dogs, <laughs> I though. guess you're right. We saw Tyrion meet uh, the other two. I think Drogon is for sure the alpha, so maybe you can meet... Yes. Rhaegal and Viserion separately. Later on. <laughs> or she's still like, they still are mad at her. What if Drogon really super likes Jon? Mm-hmm. Like more than Danny. Oh, I don't see that happening. Like how do we know that Drogon is really the one Danny was meant to ride? We've always just been assuming like that's it. Okay, so who gets the other two? Because Drogon was the one born on her shoulder. Yeah, but if Jon really is the main Targaryen of the bunch. I don't know how much of this goes back to bloodlines. You know, is that important or, you know, nature versus nurture. We talk about that all the time, but, ooh, that's interesting. Well, and finally, John says, Bran saw the Night King and his army marching on Eastwatch, and Davos replies, bad things are coming. We see the ravens flying, Bran warging. So we're going to see the walkers, even for just a They're coming, baby. No, man. I, I, I hate them, but I love seeing them on screen. They look so badass. Claudio wrote to us, Beric, Thoros, the Hound, and Tormund all show up at Eastwatch next week. Right? Gotta be. Yeah, I'm sure of it. Yeah, if we're going to see Eastwatch, we have to see them. We're approaching the end of the season, and we know from the original trailer, don't get mad at me, guys, the original trailer, that there is a fight with the Walkers. Yeah, and next episode's named Eastwatch. We know that's where they're going to try to come through. So I think you're going to get at least your first mini skirmish with them. I'm very scared. Yeah, be afraid for Tormund. Be very afraid. And the gang next episode. Well, that concludes this week of podcasts. I hope you guys enjoyed. Thank you so much for everyone who has joined our Patreon CKC podcast page. We got a bonus episode coming your way and a movie episode. If you haven't joined yet, Now's the time. Join the crew. Be part of our banner. <laughs> and unfortunately, we are a little more than halfway through this GOT 7th season now that we're done with episode 4. Believe it or not, we only have three episodes left. This is going to be a rough time from now until the next and final season of Game of Thrones, especially if we don't get any more books coming at us. So just to put this out there, and we'll make this announcement towards the end of the season. But if you're looking for more shows to fill that GOT void that's left, CKC also has a lot of other coverage, including Mr. Robot and Westworld. Thank you so much for listening. Let your friends know about us. Until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. (laughs) 
Please hang up and try again.